welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. You know, I have to say, I so appreciated and enjoyed uh, worshiping this morning with the beautiful worship set and the musicians and the singers, and there really is something quite special, and so I appreciate it very much. But because I'm not musical, the more fantastic the musical people are. Oh, I appreciate them, but I don't think I could ever do that. Now, neither do you, neither does my wife. But it reminded me of an episode from long ago that I want to sort of preface the remarks that I'll be making this morning from the Word of God. We're eventually going to get to Luke chapter 4, but that'll be about three or four minutes from now. And I'm not really sure why this story came back to my mind, but as the story goes, I was, uh, I was about 10 or 11 years old, and my mother presumed that I should have music lessons. And trust me, I never once in my life thought to myself, I would love to be a musician. But mom said I should do it. She got me a brand new Gibson guitar, which apparently was a big deal. I don't know. And so she signed me up for group guitar lessons at the local uh, park. Group guitar lessons. My mother paid these people to take me. And after one lesson, there were like, I don't know, eight or ten of us in this group, after one lesson, the teacher came up to me and said, I don't think this is going to work for you. (laughs) Wow. My mother paid this person, and I presume that she was a really great guitar player. But she sure wasn't a very good teacher. Okay, it's getting darker and lighter. (laughs) Do I move this or will the lights, uh, am I in the light? Usually I'm the only one in the dark, but this is great. Okay. And it, it, it convinced me for my whole life, music is not your thing. And I don't honestly know if I could be equipped and trained and helped to be a musician, I just know that that comment and that experience from long ago dug a groove in my soul to the place that my road doesn't kind of go forward like everyone else's. When it comes to music, I always slot over, and I'll be the first one to tell you that I don't sing well, I don't do anything musically well, and I don't even know if it's true. Now, there was no one in front of me to verify the fact that I don't sing well, (laughs) but it got me thinking about the church. And I wonder how many dear people there are, purchased daughters and sons of God, who have been redeemed, who were crafted in the womb with exactly the same care and precision that God used to fashion anyone that you might be impressed by or think, oh, wow, woman of God, man of God that the same fingers molded you in the womb, and God called you and me forth with exactly the same degree of purpose. It might look a little bit different. But I wonder how many people in church say, ah, well, you know, I'm not a ministry person, because somewhere they encountered a person who was a really amazing minister, 
but either with direct statement or subtle suggestion or just plain overlooking, left you with a feeling, I'm really not cut out for this thing called ministry unto one another. And that's what brings me to a passage that was on my heart. It's different than what I talked about this morning, but I've heard myself before, so come on, how many times can I listen to myself say the same thing? So Luke chapter 4 is where we're headed, and I'm going to read just the last three verses of Luke chapter 4 as a bridge between the backdrop that I will tell you that happens in Luke chapter 4, and then I'm going to tell you four very short little stories that make up Luke chapter 5. So if you want to know when will this guy stop talking, there will be four stories, and no matter how much you hope for it, no matter how much you earnestly pray during my second story, I'm not stopping. There will be four of them after I give you the preface to it all. So we're going to first read the Scriptures, Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 42. And when day came, Jesus departed and went to a lonely place, and the multitudes were searching for him, and they came to him, and they tried to keep him from going away from them. But Jesus said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose." And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now, probably you haven't underlined that in your, in your Bible. It's not laden with deep theological implications. But it is an interesting segue from what just has happened into where we're headed. Now, Luke chapter 4 is the pretty famous episode that I'm sure most of you have heard of where uh, Jesus stood up in the synagogue and the scroll was handed to him, uh, what we would call today the book of Isaiah. And he opened the scroll to the place where everybody knew a messianic prophecy. He said, he, and so he read what we today call Isaiah 61, the first few verses. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me. And he kept reading this whole passage of binding up the brokenhearted, setting at liberty those that are bruised, preaching release to captives, and recovery of sight to the blind to get the gospel to the poor. And everyone in the synagogue, the Scripture says they were listening to him, and I kind of picture them closing their eyes, thinking, oh, it's so nice. When he speaks, oh, it's so nice, so nice. Mm -hmm. And then he said, today. This Scripture has finally been fulfilled in your presence. I'm Messiah. Now, he didn't say those words, but trust me when I tell you that, that the, the, the Jewish people in the synagogue for centuries now have been awaiting Messiah that would come, and they all knew that this passage was a hallmark of Messiah. So when Jesus said, today the Scripture has been fulfilled in your midst, instead of them, they were like, oh, 
Oh, come on, wait a minute. They knew Jesus. He grew up in this town. And I'm sure they were all thinking, there is not a dream in the world that you, squirrely guy that you are, we went to third grade together. We had the same teacher in high school. There is no way you can be Messiah. They actually got agitated and quite angry with him because he was presuming to, 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 to be Messiah. And this is the same chapter where Jesus said, a prophet has no honor in his own town among his own people. Well, why? Because most of us have this very, um, I don't know, far off, misty sort of ooh, sense of spirituality. And, and if I know you, and if I've known you for years, it's just no way that you're going to minister effectively because I know you. So if it's a stranger that comes, you don't know anything about them, and you kind of, ooh, man of God, only because you don't know them. Jesus was raised in the community, and these people rejected him because they knew him before he made this announcement. And I just want to remind you, we're not quite done with the preface yet. We haven't even started on story one. I'll give you the cue when we're on an actual story. I want to remind you that you have grown up with yourself. And unless you have a need for special prayer, you have known yourself your whole life. If you are a recent tenant, if you have only recently occupied this body that is sitting in the chair, we will arrange for a prayer session to get rid of you, you squatter, so that the real you can come back. I'm just saying you know yourself really well. And it is your own history with yourself that tries to suggest to you, oh, you could not be used by God. That's for other sort of people, people that we don't know. Not you, because I know you. And dear friends, that right there is one of the single biggest impediments, roadblocks, to God ushering you into the purpose that he has for your life of investing in and discipling other people. We think, oh, we're okay to be somebody who is a spectator, somebody who comes to church, somebody who's, you know, kind of involved, maybe even finds a little bit of serving. But the idea that God could really, really use me, uh, we have a history and we don't buy it. Now, just before this episode, Jesus, he left the synagogue and he, he, he went and was praying for uh, Simon's mother-in-law and kind of a revival meeting happened and so many people were getting healed and delivered from every manner of brokenness in their life, every, every wreckage in their brain with their body was distorted and sick. They came and Christ healed them, touched every person. I bet some people came back for more. They probably ended up with just a sprained wrist, and then the Lord took care of that, and they're like, well, let me bring you a, a more significant condition. So many people came, and Jesus did so much ministry that he stays up all night long. Everybody else goes home and goes to bed. Jesus finally finishes praying for the last person, and then the scripture says, he went off to a lonely place. Translate that, there ain't no humans. 
He's been with these people all night long. And now he goes to this deserted, far away from everybody place. And we don't know exactly what he did there. We know he prayed a lot to the Father. In this case, he just got away from people. I personally picture him leaning up against a big rock, and he's like, oh, man, I'm tired. Because don't forget, he was not just the Son of God. He was also the Son of Man. And he got tired. So the people wake up in the morning, you know, and they're probably singing, this is the day, this is the day. that the... And they're all set to go back, get more healing. Oh, man, that was fantastic. I can't wait to get back to the same place. And they go back to where Jesus had ministered to them before. And what's the deal? He's not here. They're like, what? And they start crying out, and they scatter like a bunch of ants going all over the place, trying to find him. Jesus, 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 where are you? They were really shocked that he was not where they had left him. Well, they finally find him. And as I read the scripture, it says they tried to prevent him from going away. I picture them gang-tackling him and saying, don't ever do that again. We expect you to be right where we left you so that when we want to come back to you, we know where to find you. Don't leave us. And this, my friends, if I could use this language, and you give me a little theological uh, leeway here, this is Jesus' dilemma. This is his challenge. This is his problem. Because he does want to convince every single one of us that he can minister to any issue or need of our life. He does want us to know that he will be there for us, and if we have been broken, he will apply a fix. He is our Savior. He is our personal Savior. Yes, yes, but he ain't our personal butler. He has a job, and the fact that these disciples were among the, or the, the people were among the first to encounter the ministry of Christ, they had a reaction that is very much like people today. When we have received ministry from Christ, we want to kind of keep it contained. We want it to be there. This is fantastic. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And Jesus said, I have a job. I must take this message elsewhere. And that will set up now these four shorter-than-my-preface stories of Jesus solving the dilemma that he has that is a torture in your life. How can Christ be there for you how do you sense that close intimacy of the Lord and he still is able to go and share the message with other people? He says, here's the deal. You stick with me as we go and take this message. And that's why Luke chapter 5, uh, in many of your Bibles, the little heading will say, First Disciples. And we will encounter now Jesus speaking to 
four very, very different people in their situations. And this is him recruiting people who will be messengers for him to others. And because they have this passion to go and to invest in other people, they will sense a nearness of Jesus with them. Okay, I'm almost to the story. I know you're exhausted, but I uh, pastored for a great many years, and about 14 years ago, I felt the Lord um, tell me, turn over your church to a younger person, which was a little offensive, but turn your church over to a younger person, and I'll get back to you what you're supposed to do. I'm still kind of waiting for marching orders, but in the meantime, I just travel around and get to talk to a lot of, a lot of churches, a lot of, a lot of pastors. But in the many years that I pastored, I did observe a phenomenon. And that was that there was, um, for, for, for people who, I mean, earnest, sincere, oh, oh, I really want God in my life, people I'm talking about. Not the sort of so-so ones. I mean, just, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. I noticed this phenomenon. If they never got to a place of investing in other people, ministering to other people, the excitement and the thrill of, thank you, Lord, yes, yes, <laughs> it kind of wore off after a while. And, <laughs> you know, don't you remember the good old days when the Lord was really doing something? And they will then invent all kinds of really interesting language about the anointing and blah, blah, blah. Really what it is is that they're not following the pattern of Christ. Because ultimately, this is the deal. The thrill of him doing something to you is supposed to be replaced to him doing something through you. And when you get into this mode of doing to others what is done to you, wow, that's when the excitement really, really picks up. Okay, four people that we're going to look at that Christ uh, recruits. You can read these stories on your own. I'm going to uh, abbreviate them. Okay, the first guy we meet is Simon Peter. And this morning, I talked about Peter's encounter, his last encounter with Christ, and this is his first one. Very important, the little details in the gospel. So when we first meet Peter, he is not among the adoring throng of people who just want to listen to more of what Jesus says. There is a group of people like that, and they're so eager to hear, they keep crowding him. And this is back before the days of microphones, and you may well know that if you don't have a microphone, you have to amplify your voice and kind of aim your head up and speak over the people in front so those in the back can have one. If you do have a microphone, my vote is don't amplify your voice like you don't. Okay. So Jesus is trying to speak to these people, and they keep getting closer. So he takes a step back so he can speak over the crowd. They get closer. He takes a step back. This goes on a little bit. Eventually, his foot touches water, and he knows this is not the chapter when he walks on water. And so he spots an empty fishing boat. Just happens to belong to Peter. Peter is not in the boat saying, would you like a ride, O Lord? No, Peter is on the shore. He's mending his nets, which I don't imagine was too exciting. And he'd been up all night long. He's caught absolutely zero fish. Can't be in the best of all moods. Any of you were ever worked graveyard shift? Do you know what we mean, all night long? They call it graveyard shift for a reason. 
Apparently, all who worked the graveyard shift went straight on to the graveyard. Well, if you've ever worked all night long, it is not a pleasant scene first thing in the morning. So Jesus, very cagey, he steps into Peter's boat, and then he says to Pete, can I borrow your boat? Because the Bible tells us that Jesus knows all people. And I'm sure he knew that if he said to Peter, Peter, do you mind, could I borrow your boat? Peter would have some excuse. No, 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 he would have said in so many words. So Jesus didn't ask ahead of time. I love this. He steps into his life and then says, can I make use of this? And I'm sure you've had that experience where all of a sudden you kind of feel carried along for the ride and the Lord has surprised you by using a conversation or something. He doesn't usually ask first. He makes use of you. And so Peter's like, uh, what can I say? Much harder to get Christ out of your boat. Much, much easier if you don't want to sail with him. Keep him out. But once he gets in, well, be careful. So the boat goes away from the shore. Jesus finishes the message. And then as I read the story, how do you thank a fisherman who has caught no fish all night long and you've just used his boat? You get him fish. And so I picture Jesus saying, Peter, thanks very much for the use of your boat. If you'll just drop your nets down there, you'll get all kinds of fish. We'll call it a day. Thanks for the memories and, and so on. And Peter's like, ha, <laughs> ha. Well, that's really nice. There's only two minor problems with your suggestion. Problem one, we fish at night and not in the day. And problem number two, there are no fish in this stupid lake because I fished all night long. But, but okay, okay. To get you off my boat, hmm, hmm, watch, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to lower my nets. He lowers his nets, and so many fish start swimming in this net. He's hauling the net up on the boat. And this is when people who don't read their Bible say, Oh, hallelujah. Oh, it was revival. Maybe what the book tells us is that his nets begin to tear, and his boat begins to sink. And so Peter has to row like a crazy man to get back to shore before the boat goes under. Thank you, Lord. I don't think so. Peter's like, what am I going to do with all the?" Gets to the shore, and how I picture, fish are flopping everywhere, pieces of torn net are around, broken planks and oars are everywhere, and Peter, who we will learn is not, what do you say in New Zealand? We say not the sharpest knife in the drawer he had a lot of protective bone work. <laughs> okay, he's, he, he's a little bit of a... Gives me a lot, a lot of hope. And, and so Peter's like, he looks at the fish, he looks back at Christ, to the fish, to Christ, to the fish, to the fish, to Christ, back to the fish, to Christ, and he says, Wode, you're like a holy man. But that isn't the part of the story that interests me. Because you also have probably recognized, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, <gasps> Son of God, oh. It's a little bit easier to acknowledge or to see Christ as a holy man yeah. than what, well, anyway, what Peter says 
to, to Jesus? Very interesting. <gasps> oh, oh, no. Oh, no. You've made a terrible mistake. You, you got in the wrong boat. The good charter boat captain, he was two boats down. I am a bad man. And if you don't get away from me, I am single-handedly going to ruin your reputation. Oh, why didn't you tell me you were a good man, you were a holy man? Because I know enough to know that holy people and me, we don't go together. So quick, before anybody sees that you've been hanging out with me, you better go away. Hmm. Sound like anyone you know? Lord, Lord, Lord. But when he in any way wants to start making use of you, he wants to use you as he's going to use Peter to touch others and to share the message with others, isn't it curious how your soul fires up with so many instant disqualifications? Lord, I would truly love to serve you more, but, you know, I'm a bad man. And the issue of my not good enoughness only really comes up at the prospect that Jesus might want to do more with me than simply have me be an audience. And Peter says, you don't know about my life. You better get away. <laughs> and Christ's response is, well, I'm trashing your whole life anyway, so it doesn't really matter. See, this is the gospel. It's not my life as kind of a, a, a somewhat modified, a little bit reformed continuation of the rat that I have always been. No, this is a total transformation, as the Apostle Paul will at one point say to his young friend Timothy, hey, did I ever tell you what a bad guy I was before I served? Well, let me tell you the story. And he said, do you know why God has used me, has chosen me? Because he didn't want anyone to ever wonder, is grace sufficient to cover sin? And so he got sinner A number one, the worst possible specimen of humanity. And he uses me as exhibit A to say, if Christ can do it to me, he can do it to you. Jesus wants to totally change whatever you believe disqualifies you from being used by him. The second person that we meet is a leper. And what you might not know about, about lepers in that day was, was that it was the leper's responsibility to stay away from healthy people. Uh, by the way, I did notice uh, walking around uh, Hamilton, well, it's a bit of a ghost town these last few days, but nice that people have come back. And because I'm from California, I'm very nervous when I come to crossing a street because I have no idea from which direction the cars might be coming. So I'm, you know, doing, doing this all the time. But I did notice that <clears throat> the drivers here, perhaps it's just a few that I encountered, have absolutely no regard for pedestrians. <laughs> Which is to say, uh, in California, pedestrians have the right of way 
uh, I don't know that you want to get into a shoving match with an automobile, but in theory, at least, I can step out and you're supposed to stop and not just keep going. Well, that's different than how things are. Uh, I was speaking about lepers. Well, lepers back then are like pedestrians in Hamilton today, okay? <laughs> Uh, healthy cars come zipping down the road, and you don't say, oh, well, I'm a leper. Of course, they're not going to get near to me. They will flatten you, sucker, and, and go on their way. So the leper was constantly like, like this. Oh, oh, here's a healthy person. I have to move away. And I imagine there were probably a lot of little squirrely seven, eight-year, nine-year-old boys that, hey, let's Let's play chase the leper, right? And they would kind of surround him. A healthy little kid comes up, and the leper's got it back. And then another one comes, and the leper's got it back off again. So the lepers were accustomed to staying at a distance. And to make matters even worse, the screwy theology of some of the religious people at that time was basically to say this, that leprosy, leprosy is the one bad thing, and if you have it, even God won't help you. So a leper had no hope, even though the Old Testament talks about it, had no hope of being healed. So imagine yourself as the leper who is watching Jesus healing everybody. And no matter what the sickness, no matter what the he's healing them all. And so he cries out and says, Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, if only you were willing to touch me, I see you have the power. But it's too bad that I've got the one thing that you won't touch and you won't heal. My experience is that almost everybody has some episode in their life or some season where they took a detour or something that they know isn't right, but they kind of imagine that, well, too bad. Jesus won't take care of that. He can't deal with the wrong that's in my life or the wrong that has been in my life. And many of us self-disqualify ourselves because, well, oh, we love to hear the stories of how he just forgives and heals other people. We even pray for them. Yes, Jesus. But that thing that we've done, that stuff that has a hold of us, the wrongness in our soul, we, we no, 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 no. He, he won't ever touch that. And so this man is saying, it's too bad. I have the one thing that cannot be touched. And Jesus said, oh, of course I'm willing. And he stepped across every social, religious boundary, walked right up to this leper, heals him completely, and then do you know what Jesus says to the leper? It's so classic. So he heals them all completely. He's like, wow, thank you. And Jesus says, hey, go show yourself to the religious leaders. This will blow their mind. <laughs> because religion 
Religion prides itself on being able to spell out all the things that are wrong. And once you violate those things, too bad for you. And if you have one of those things going on in your life, then wholesale, you are finished. Religion offers no opportunity for redemption and forgiveness and transformation. But Christ does. So he heals this man and says, go tell the religious people. It'll make them crazy. How are we doing? We're speeding along, aren't we? This is my favorite story, so if I take a little longer, you'll forgive me. I remember even in Sunday school being intrigued by the paralytic that was brought to Jesus by his four friends. And to show you how old I am, I mean, I'm, I'm visual exhibit A. You can see how old I am. But to tell you, I remember the days of felt board. Any other felt board people here? Yeah, I, oh, good for you. Well, you see, it's only old people that read. Can you believe it? It was little felt-covered board, and then they, they had these cut-out figures, and this little paper figure could be Joseph this week, and it could be Christ the next week, because, you know, a little church, you don't have so many things. And the little story of, of uh, this, this man being lowered into the presence of Jesus. Well, as I told you, I like reading the details, and I like reading my Bible with a smile, on my face. You, you, you should try it. It changes a lot of what you see. I'm kind of always looking, not for, not for funny things to demean them, but I get a kick out of a lot of the things that I, that I read. So I can't tell you this is exactly how the story happens, but it's my imagination. I like to read in between the lines, and uh, we'll see. Now, it's four guys that bring this this, this, this man to Jesus. That in California is important. Four guys, four dudes, four, yeah, four guys. So <clears throat> let's begin by asking ourselves, why do you think there was no room for them to bring this guy? Well, I figure they didn't know what time the meeting started. They have this kind of, you know, it'll work out, it'll be fine, I don't know, 637, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and, and so they're late. Hello. And imagine their shock. They're late. Oh, oh, there's, no, there, there's no room. There must be something wrong here. They never think there must be something wrong with my preparation to get ready to this and think about when and exactly I should come. It's just, uh, wow. So then, I don't know if you imagine these are four very sweet men that just want this poor guy healed. I think they are on a basketball team at the local park, and they are tired of four-on-five getting whooped again and again, so they want this joker to get healed. So they come to bring him. They can't get in the room. So picture this, the four guys. This is four guys thinking, what are they going to do now? One is at each corner of the, of the, of the little stretcher thing. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. See, guys think better when they can kind of do this. Uh, nobody's got any ideas. Finally, one person says, hey, man, I got an idea. I got a new uh, sawzall, a new electric saw in the back of my truck. Why don't we take him up on the roof, cut a hole in the roof, and lower him down? 
Now, because the guy who had an idea is a guy, and there were three other guys, they thought, oh, that's cool, that's totally great, yeah, what a good idea. Now, could I suggest to you that if one of these had been a girl, even a, a seven-year-old little girl, and she heard a man say, yeah, we'll just cut a hole in the roof, I'm pretty sure she would say, I don't think that's such a good idea. What about the dust? But these are guys. They don't know from whence cometh dust or whither it goeth. <laughs> so the fact that they might introduce a little bit more is not a deal breaker to them. So they take them up on the roof, and California guys at least, there is not a dream in the world. They're going to lay this guy out and take their chalk line and, and get a hole that's big enough to lower him down like this. No, 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 they're guys. Our motto is close enough. It'll be fine. So I picture the hole about this big. And I don't know if they stuffed him in head first, which had to be really disconcerting. You get stuck in this, uh, hello, everyone. I don't know if it was head first or if it is feet first. And if they're cramming him in feet first, he's telling them, I am so going to get you guys when this is over. And they're saying, what are you going to do? You're paralyzed. And they lower him down. And I'm sure the last thing this dear man heard was, oops, because I don't think the rope that was in the back of the pickup were four exactly the same length pieces. One of them had to be shorter, and boom, this man falls in, right in the middle of a debate that Jesus is having with the religious people. And he's been saying to them, I can forgive sins. And they're like, no, you can't. Jesus like, yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. And then he says, hey, to end this discussion, boom, this guy falls in. Thanks for dropping in. Hey, hey, to end this discussion, if I change this man's physical condition, will you accept that I have the power to change his spiritual condition? Because after all, you don't really ever know if someone is forgiven or not. Right? If I say you're forgiven, they don't get a big F on their forehead. Oh, thanks very much. They don't now glow in the dark. You know, I wonder if I'm forgiven. Go in the closet, close the door. Oh, yeah, okay, 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 I'm forgiven. There's no way of telling a forgiven from an unforgiven person. So how about if I change this man's condition? And so he says, so that everybody knows that I do have the power to forgive sins. Get up and go. He's gone. The last person we meet, you know, maybe you have been in a condition for a long time. We develop, all of us, a, a sort of a spiritual muscle memory, if I could put it that way. And if you have spent a, a long season in a, in a wayward posture, if you have, well, if you've maybe been living the way that you're not supposed to live, that even you would know, you don't need a preacher telling you. The, and then Christ changes things, and he forgives you. Sometimes we can think we're still like we were before we got forgiven. And this man was changed. 
and we are too. The last man that we meet in this chapter is uh, Matthew. At the time, he's called Levi, and he was a tax collector. He will eventually be the writer of one of the Gospels. The first book in the New Testament is written by the guy Matthew that we're now going to meet. And when we meet him, he, like Peter, is not eager to hear anything that Jesus had to say. He's not in the crowds. He wasn't there for the Sermon on the Mount. He's a tax collector, and he is in his office collecting taxes. And, and that's, again, for their culture, that's like the worst of the worst. Here is a man who is using the system of the government, as it were, to profit from other people. And the world is full of individuals who leverage the world system in a way to serve themselves, to enrich themselves, and they do so at the expense of other people. This guy is a manipulator. This guy is a, is, he's just a bad man. And Jesus walks right into his tax-collecting office. And what strikes me is what Jesus doesn't say to this man. He doesn't come in the office and <clears throat> clear his throat so that Matthew will look up from his counting his shekels and say, oh, 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 sorry, Lord. No, he doesn't clear his throat. He doesn't say, Matthew, how many times have we I told you to stop this? He doesn't tell him, stop your sinning. What is wrong with you, Matthew? He doesn't say any of that. He says the one thing that he says to everyone all the time. If you have been living a, a recently a really high water mark life in Christ and you're just soaring on the mountaintops, thank you, Lord. Or if you're just kind of, yeah, you know. <laughs> or if you have been taking a really, really wrong detour. Doesn't matter. Christ's words are the same. If you're very new in your walk with the Lord or if you have known your Savior for decades, he says the same thing. Something that can be spoken to sinner and saint alike, to someone who is heading off into the desert of rebellion or someone who is coming in stamping the sand off their feet and coming back to Christ. He says to us all, follow me. And if I am in sin and I follow Christ, he will lead me out. And even if I stop following, he will circle back around and say, follow me. And this follow me declaration is basically Jesus saying, I want you with me as I go and minister to other people. And if you will focus on passing along to others the lessons that you have learned, if you will be, as we talked about this morning, if you will become a tender, a shepherd to other people, the nearness of Christ is something that you will enjoy in a way that is, I think personally, not possible if I'm just having Christ and me alone. Four individuals who didn't imagine that they could be used by God. 
that Christ chose them intentionally as surely as he has chosen you. And it might be, as I, as I conclude, it might, might be just something for you to uh, try out. Maybe just try this prayer and say, Lord, I'm open to following you in engagement with other people in ways that I, I haven't known to do before. I'm not really good at it. I don't know what to do. But if you open up doors and opportunities in the lives of other people, I'm going to do what I can to share with them what you have shared with me. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.